On the last week of Jesus' life here on earth, he and his disciples were making their way towards Jerusalem, towards that ultimate date with destiny at the cross. But Luke 19 tells us that as they were making their way to Jerusalem, they came to a small town of Bethany outside, headed up towards Jerusalem. And it was in Bethany that a large crowd gathered and began to wave palm branches and began to shout, Hosanna, Hosanna to the King of Kings. Uh, We call that uh, Palm Sunday. We celebrate it on Palm Sunday, the triumphal entry. But Luke goes on to say that after they walked through the crowds and the crowds are following, they came around the city streets of Bethany and began to make the turn up towards Jerusalem. Jerusalem was a hill, sits on a hill. And as they came up and began to go up towards Jerusalem, Jesus caught a glimpse of Jerusalem. And in Luke 19, he says, verse 14, that that as Jesus glimpsed Jerusalem, he began to weep. He began to cry. Now we know there are several reasons why he was crying. He goes on to explain a couple of them. But first of all, he was crying because he recognized What had happened to the children of God? See, as he came around and began to see the city, he imagined that this city, Jerusalem, that was founded by King David for the sole purpose of worship God. You see, David created Jerusalem as his capital and put the temple in Jerusalem so that the Hebrews from all over the lands could come there and have an intimate relationship with God. It was created to be one with God. It It was created to recreate what happened in the garden where God and His people walked hand in hand. But as Jesus was looking at Jerusalem, He recognized that that's not what it had become. The people had walked away. The people had abandoned the faith. The people had began to follow false gods. The people had grown tired. And even those that were still following in the faith followed a set of ritualistic rules instead of an intimate relationship. You see, Jesus was weeping for what could have been, for what should have been. But we also know that Jesus was weeping because he recognized that many in that city, knowing what was going to happen in the next week, many in that city were going to reject the very thing that God was giving them to reconcile that void, to reconcile that distance between dry ritual religion and intimate fellowship. See, Jesus recognized that they were going to turn their back on him, and he was weeping. That's not the only time we find Jesus being described in grief. Matter of fact, in John eleven thirty five, 35, uh, we have the shortest verse in the Bible. It says, Jesus wept. Now, Jesus is weeping for a different reason in that instance. He's weeping because he found out that his good friend Lazarus, who was the brother of Mary and Martha, had passed away. Now, we know that he is going to resurrect Lazarus, but in that instant, when he found out that his good friend had died, he grieved. He wept. Now, the reason I'm bringing up those two instances is because in both of those instances, when he was weeping for the city, when he was weeping for Lazarus, the same Greek word is used to describe that feeling. And it's the same word that we find as the key word in our passage this morning. So if you have a Bible, I want you to turn there. Matthew chapter 5. If you don't have a Bible, you can follow along in your order of service. This passage of Scripture that we're studying on following Jesus, Matthew 5, 6, and 7, is called the Sermon on the Mount. And the Sermon on the Mount is a set of behaviors, a set of behaviors given to those that are following Christ on on how we are supposed to live within this lost world. And Jesus starts this sermon off with what we call the Beatitudes. Now, the Beatitudes, that word, is not found in any Scripture 
because it's not a Greek word. It is a Latin word that was added later. The Latin for uh, beatitude simply means blessed. And the reason it's added is because the verses 3 through 11 all start with the word blessed. And we learned last week that that word blessed is the Greek word markeros. Markeros is translated inner joy. It's translated blessedness. It's translated uh, happiness. And so many people say these are the be happy attitudes, that these are ways to be happy. Matter of fact, some translations translated them, happy are the poor in spirit, happy are those that mourn. But I don't think the word happiness does it justice, as we've discussed, because it's not talking about a happiness that's based on circumstances. It's not talking about a happiness because you got a big bank account or because you made first team or because you got an A on your paper or because you got a big raise. It is an internal happiness that is not based on any external consequences or any external situations. And it's an internal happiness, an internal joy that can't be touched by the things of this world. Uh, Death doesn't affect this joy. Poverty doesn't affect this joy. Uh, Sickness doesn't affect this joy. It is an internal joy that is the promise for all believers. Now, if you looked at this at first glance, it would be easy for us to say, well, well, Jesus has given us nine characteristics of what we need to do. And and it's easy to look, and I've heard people use the Sermon on the Mount this way, to say, I'm going to make a list of things, nine things that I need to try harder at to make become a reality in my life. But Jesus here in the Beatitudes is not giving a prescription. He is not telling us things to do. He is giving a description. He is describing someone. Who is he describing? He's describing himself. You see, if you read the Beatitudes, verses 3 through 11, you will get a glimpse of the character, the very nature of Jesus Christ. And we discovered a couple of weeks ago that as followers of Christ, we are called to emulate him. So if he is describing his character, he is describing who you and I can be, should be, when we are following Jesus Christ. You see, when you look at this, when you read this, you should be able to look in the mirror and see that this is you. This is supposed to be your nature. This is who you were saved to be, who you were created to be. If we totally yield ourselves to the Holy Spirit. You see, what's keeping us from living a life this way, what's keeping us from experiencing these things is not because we're not trying hard enough. It's not because you're not religious enough or you don't come to church enough. It's because you have areas of your life that you haven't given over to the Holy Spirit. We've taught that the Holy Spirit and being filled with the Spirit is not about getting something special. My charismatic brothers are wrong on this and the idea that somehow that to get filled with the Holy Spirit I have to have some kind of special extra experience. And there are experiences that you have when you can experience a new and fresh touch of the Holy Spirit. But you've got all the Holy Spirit that you need at the moment you accepted Jesus Christ. To be filled with the Spirit is not you getting more, it's the Holy Spirit getting more of you. And you see, when you submit yourself to the Holy Spirit, all of a sudden you begin to see these characteristics come lived out of your life. When you yield yourself to the Holy Spirit, this is what you will look like. And Jesus starts off his sermon this way because he knows that you will not be able to live out any of these other principles in Matthew 5, 6, and 7 if you are not yielded to the Holy Spirit, if you are not living this character nature. Now, I want to remind you from last week, this list is not something you can just try harder to achieve. 
We're not teaching this so you can write a note and say, I, I need to be more poor in spirit. And here's what Rusty said I can do to be more in peace, poor in spirit. Matter of fact, it's just the opposite. It's not about you trying more. It's about you trying less and letting God try more. See, the reason some of you are not experiencing these characteristics we're going to talk about is because you're trying to do it all in your strength. And your strength will never produce these results. What you've got to do is you've got to take your hands off of it and say, Holy Spirit, you come. Show me what I'm holding back. Shine a light in my spirit, in my heart. Show me the areas of my life where pride has taken over, where arrogance has taken over, where conceit has taken over. And God, show me how I can get rid of those things because you see, it's as you begin to get rid of those things in the power of the Holy Spirit, all of a sudden these characteristics become a reality for you. And we also learned last week that these traits are in direct contrast to the world's standards. Matter of fact, when you read them, they sound crazy. They are so paradoxical that they don't make sense to many people in our world, to many people in our culture when they read these. Matter of fact, for example, last week we looked at verse 3, which says, Happy or blessed are the poor. And that goes against everything our, our culture teaches, right? Blessed are the poor. See, we teach and our culture teaches just the opposite. Blessed are the rich. Blessed are those who go and get it. Blessed are those who pursue their own reality. Not blessed are the poor, but it doesn't seem to make sense when you begin to read that and you begin to explain that to people. But in God's kingdom, it makes perfect sense. Because the poor is not talking about finances, it's talking about spirit. It's talking about recognizing who you are when you stack up with who God is. And in that gap, that void between who you are and who God is, it draws you to poverty. You recognize the poverty of your heart. Now I'm not going to try to go back and preach last week's message. I took 40 minutes and barely got halfway through with it. Uh, but if you missed it, if you weren't here last week, if you miss any of these Beatitudes, they are linked. Okay, You can't have one without the other. And so I want to encourage you, go listen to the podcast. If you've got to miss in the future, listen to the podcast. Because you've got to build on each of these linkages as you grow. So I want to encourage you to do that. Now, let's look at what he says here in verse 4. Last week, blessed are the poor in spirit, for they will inherit the kingdom of heaven. Here he says in verse 4, blessed are those who mourn for they will be comforted. Now, at face value, that sounds crazy. Let, let me give you what the New Living Bible says. Happy are the sad. Now, does that sound like a paradox? You don't see that written on any memes on in, the Internet, do you? You don't see some uh, Instagram picture or Facebook picture that says, happy are the sad with an uh, unfrowning face, right? Because that doesn't make sense until you begin to understand what Jesus is trying to teach us. See, the word here for mourn, that happy are those who mourn, is the same word we got a minute ago from Jesus weeping. It's the same exact word. Matter of fact, there are nine Greek words in the New Testament used to describe mourning or weeping or sadness. They describe everything from being upset because something didn't go your way or, or being uh, you know, hurt because someone hurt you being disappointed but the most severe word used in all of the new testament is the most severe word in the greek language for this morning it's the same word used for weeping it is the same word used 
to describe what, what Jacob felt when his sons came home and said, Joseph, your son is dead. Remember when we studied on Joseph? And Jacob tore his coat and he fell on the ground and he began to weep. You see, this isn't you standing there with a tear running down. I love that when people talk about Jesus weeping. It's like he's standing there and he's a statue. You, you remember the pictures you used to see when you were a kid and they'd put them up on the flannel board and, you know, Jesus weeping. He looked like the Indian chief in the old uh, commercial for the EPA, you know, that's crying over the, the nature. And Jesus is standing there and there's a tear coming. No, no, that's not what he's saying here. You see, the word he is using is, is he is wailing. He is mourning. It is ugly cry time. He's not just saying, oh, I, I hate that the city has turned its back. He is broken over the city turning its back. And so what Jesus is saying here is, blessed are those who are broken. It's the same feeling to describe somebody that's lost a child or a spouse or a parent. Some of you know what that's like. That's the feeling he's describing. Now, on first glance, it's easy to read this, and a lot of people fall into this trap. It's easy to read this and say, okay, blessed are those who mourn, for those will be comforted. He's saying that blessed are Christians when you face death and tragedy and difficulty because God will comfort you. Now, that's a reality. That's a promise of the Bible. The Bible does say that when you face death, when you face disease, when you face struggles, when you face difficulties, God will comfort you. Matter of fact, it's a supernatural comfort. It's a supernatural peace. I, I don't understand how someone that doesn't have Christ gets through some of those tragedies in life because the only way I've ever been able to get through them was trusting in God. And it was in that trust that God brought peace. But that's not what he's talking about here. You see, this mourning is a deeper meaning and it's directly related to the context of what he says. You see, it's directly related to what's happening in verse 3. The word here for mourn is a continual active form of the Greek word. You know what that means? That means it's not a one-time event. It's not something that happens once. It is continuing to happen. So if you wanted to translate that out, you would say, Blessed are those who continue to mourn, for they will continue to be blessed. Now, why are they mourning? They are mourning because of what we found out last week in verse 3. Blessed are the poor in spirit. You see, you can directly say that Verse 4 is an emotional response to the intellectual understanding of verse 3. What does the verse 3 teach us last week? That I am nothing, that I have nothing, that I bring nothing. Apart from God, I am spiritually bankrupt. We called it dirt broke poor bankrupt. You see, verse 3 taught us that God in heaven is so incredible. God in heaven is so holy. God in heaven, He's not the man upstairs or some cosmic genie. He is the creator. How great thou art. And when I begin to get a good look at who I am, compared to who He is, I am bankrupt. And that bankruptcy will always drive me to mourning. It will always drive me to a place of brokenness. Now, why am I so bankrupt compared to a holy and righteous God? One word, sin. You see, I find myself in the circumstance and situation I am because of sin. Sin has corrupted my relationship with God. Sin has corrupted everything that I bring. My righteousness is as filthy rags because of the sin in my life. So what Jesus is trying to say here is that the cause of our mourning, the cause of our broken heart 
is sin. Our sins, the consequences of the sins of the world, the sins in our nation, the sins that we see in the life of our friends and family and world. See, what Jesus wants us to get from this passage is that when we take sin and its effects seriously, it will always drive you to mourning. So let me ask you something right off the bat. When's the last time you were driven to sorrow because of the sin in your life? Now, I know you're a believer, and I know you've accepted Christ, and you've been forgiven for your sin, but sin still corrupts. Sin still destroys your relationship with God. Sin still, listen, even though you are a child of God, even though you are redeemed, even though you are a part of the family, sin breaks God's heart. That's what we should be mourning about. And Jesus said it's in that place of mourning, it's in that place of brokenness that we can really experience joy and comfort. But you see, without the proper attitude towards sin, you never experience joy. You never experience comfort. That's why so many Christians are so beat up with where they are. Because they don't understand what to do with what happens when they disappoint God. What to do with the sin that comes in their life. Let me give you my translation of this passage. This is, as I begin to pray and think about, how can I communicate this to our church? Blessed, happy, or blissful are those who continue to be brokenhearted over what breaks God's heart, for they will be continually comforted. You see, we are to be brokenhearted over what breaks God's heart. And what breaks God's heart more than anything else is sin. It broke His heart so much that it caused Him to send His Son to die on a cross, to be an atoning sacrifice for that sin. You see, we should be heartbroken over the consequences of sin in our world. We should be heartbroken over the poverty and the war and the hatred and the murder of the innocent that takes place in our world. Why? Because it breaks God's heart. But instead, and most of us in middle America are indifferent to the pain and struggles of the world. When's the last time the suffering of the world caused you to become broken before God? See, it's easier just to switch the channel. It's easier to act like it doesn't. Somebody else will deal with it. You see, he's saying, blessed are those who are brokenhearted over the consequences of sin in our nation. Jesus was weeping for a city. When's the last time you wept for our nation? Oh, I know we like to give our political opinion and we like to post nice, cute things about how our candidate's going to solve anything. When's the last time you got on your knees and were broken before God and poured out your heart in prayer because our nation has turned its back on God, because the people of our country have turned their backs on God? Listen, things aren't going to change. God's not going to fall down from heaven and, and bring about a great revival until the people of God get on their faces and begin to cry out for it. That's what it means to mourn. When's the last time you were brokenhearted for your friends, for your family? for your co-workers, for your neighbors that are enslaved to sin, that are miserable because of the sin in their life, that are separated from God, that will spend an eternity in heaven away from God. See, it's sad that so many of us in the church, we will weep, 
when our favorite TV character dies, but we're indifferent to those we see every day who are separated from God. Leonard Ravenhill said, You'll know the fate of America has come when the altars of the churches cease to be wet with the weeping of the saints. When's the last time you mourned for your friends that were lost? It's gotten to the point that when somebody fails, when somebody blows it, when somebody gives in to sin, when somebody makes a mistake, we celebrate it. It's the number one thing in the news. We call one another. We gossip. I know in the church we don't gossip. We pray for them, right? We pray for them. When's the last time when you heard about a brother or sister in Christ that blew it, that made a mistake, that, that failed, that broke God's heart, that you allowed it to break your heart? You see, that's the person God created you to be when you submit to the Holy Spirit. And most importantly, how do you respond to the sin in your own life? You see, he's saying, blessed are those who mourn, who mourn over the sins of the world, who mourn over the sins of their friends, who mourn over the sins and consequences of the nation. But more importantly than all that is blessed is he who knows how to deal with the sin that's in their own life. Let me tell you how Christians respond to sin. We usually go to two extremes because that's just where we are. We, we have a tough time finding balance. All, all of us in our spiritual lives have a tough time finding balance. That's why Paul talks about balance all the time. But we go to two extremes. Either we are over here and we ignore it and think it'll go away. We just act like it didn't happen, right? I, I mean, it just didn't happen. Or we excuse it. Everybody else is doing it, right? There becomes a place for us to just excuse it, rationalize it away. Matter of fact, I heard a young person say this this week, and you talk about breaking my heart. They said, why in the world would God create something that's so fun if he didn't want us to experience it? I can't begin to start with how wrong that presumption is. But that's where some of us are as Christians. We just want to ignore it. We just say, it's no big deal. Little white lie, right? I just glanced at that website once. I, I just read that thing one time. I just lied one time. I just cheated one time. It's not a big deal. And then on the other extreme are those who are sin hunters. They spend all their time looking for sin. They're looking for sin in your life. They're looking for sin in the world's life, right? These are the people that are like, you know, turn that record backwards and you're going to hear Satan come up, so don't stay away from the demon music. And, you know, we shouldn't have lights in the church because it's going to cause somebody to sin. They spend all of their time, all of their joy of being a Christian is robbed because they're always looking for sin. It reminded me of a neighbor I had in Texas. We, we had some incredible Bermuda grass in Texas, but the thing with Bermuda in Texas is that weeds will grow up. And they grow up fast. Man, a dandelion comes up, and that dandelion will spread wheat all over the place. And I didn't care, okay, because I hate yard work. I mean, I'll just be honest. I like going out. If I saw it, I picked it. But my, I like to take my shoes off and walk in the grass. But my neighbor, I promise you, every time I went outside, she was on her knees with these little knee pads and these elbow pads, and she was crawling around the yard digging out little pieces Every day. And I thought, you never get to enjoy the yard because all you do is try to dig up the weeds. That's the way we are as Christians. God said, you're forgiven. You've been set free. Yes, we are to mourn when we sin. But stop going out and trying to search it and be so preoccupied with it. We find two extremes. 
So what are we supposed to do with our sin? Well, before I tell you what the Bible says is the proper response that leads to mourning, let me give you a couple things that are not the right way. First of all, not right response is despair. You know what despair is? Despair is hopelessness. Sadly, I know many in the church that when they blow it, they think it's the end of the world. And I'm not talking about fake. I'm talking about they think their life has no purpose anymore. If there's anything the Bible teaches us is that no one is beyond hope. But sometimes we get caught in that lie that because of sin, my life is hopeless now. That's not the proper way to deal with sin. The other way that it's not right to deal with sin is conceit. That's the idea that I'm better than those around me, so I must be doing pretty good. My sin's not as bad as everybody else, so we just don't deal with it because we feel like we're doing pretty good, right? You're at church on a rainy Sunday. You must be doing pretty good. Surely God gives you a bogey, right? Mulligan bogey. My golf, I hadn't played in a while. Gives you a mulligan, right? Doesn't God say, oh, well, listen, you came to church, so that sin's not going to matter. I'm going to wipe it off the books. I'm doing pretty good, man. There were some really bad people in church, and, and I know God was trying to focus on them and not me. Conceit will never take you to a place of mourning. Despair will never take you a place of mourning. Presumption. That's what we talked about a couple of weeks ago. That's cheap grace. That's the idea that I'm already forgiven, so what does it matter how I live? Right? God's already forgiven me. God's already said, I'm cleansed, so what's it matter if I go out and make mistakes? All that does is cheapen grace, and it takes repentance out of the picture. And then there's procrastination, and that's where a lot of us fall. It's that idea that you come to church and the Holy Spirit begins to work on you and He begins to shine the light of things in your life that you need to change and instead of changing, you say, I'll do it next week. And I'll do it next week. And we ignore the consequences of our sin because see, the worst part of sin is the consequences that we have to deal with. And they just get worse and worse and worse. It's like saying the cover-up is always worse than the action, Right? And if you ignore it, it just keeps piling on and piling on, and eventually you will grow deaf to the Holy Spirit trying to convict you of that sin anyway. Stop putting it off. Some of you are going to walk out of here this morning, and you're going to put off being set free. You're going to put off experiencing happiness. I heard an old preacher say this, Sin takes you farther than you want to go, keeps you longer than you want to stay, and costs you more than you're willing to pay. So what's the Bible say we should respond to sin? Well, it, it's a process. It starts with regret. When you recognize that you've crossed the line with God, the first step is always regret. I wish I wouldn't have done that. I know I did something wrong. But regret is not enough to bring happiness and comfort. Regret doesn't change behavior. See, there's a lot of people in here. You regret something that you did, and then you did it right back, didn't you? You did it again. I, man, I, didn't, I shouldn't have done that, and you did it again. Regret leads to remorse if we're open in our heart. And remorse is saying, I wish I could take it back. Not only do I feel bad, do I know I did something wrong, but I wish I hadn't done it in the first place. And remorse is part of the process. But remorse doesn't bring life change. Remorse doesn't bring comfort. Because you see, what happens is you say, I, I regret it and I wish I wouldn't have done it. And I move to remorse. And then you come to the most important part, and that is repentance. And godly sorrow, brokenness is always found in repentance. Repentance, by its very definition, means to change directions. Repentance is the place of comfort. 
Repentance is the place of happiness. Repentance is the place of joy. You see what Jesus is trying to teach us is blessed are those who are broken hearted over the things that break God's heart for they will be comforted. Why? Because they repented of it. They turned around. They changed their behavior. Think about the prodigal son. You remember the prodigal son? He took his inheritance early, went to live in the far land, went hog wild, partied, had a good time, went out and did everything, lots of friends while he was buying drinks and while he was the life of the party. Then his money ran out, no friends around. And the Bible teaches that he was at a pig trough because his only job he could find as a Hebrew was feeding the pigs, which was unclean work. And it was in that pig trough that he began to regret, maybe I didn't do the right thing. And then he probably started having some remorse. Man, I wish I'd have stayed at home. Matter of fact, he says that servants in my dad's house get more than this. Man, I wish I would have stayed home. But do you understand? In regret and remorse, he was still in the pig trough. There was no comfort. There was no joy. There was no happiness. And some of you this morning, that is as far as you go with your sin. I feel bad. Man, that preacher made me feel bad. He stepped on my toes. Man, I wish I shouldn't have done that. But there's not joy there. There's not happiness and there is not comfort there. It wasn't until he decided, listen, I'm going home. He got up and he changed his direction. And that change in direction, that repentance, it always requires that you change your mind. It always starts in the mind. That's why Romans 12, 2 says, don't, don't give in to the things of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. You see, what happens in your mind when you're in that sin and you begin to repent is you start realizing God knew more about this sin than I did. You see, that's part of repentance is saying, God, I agree with what you said about that sin. We start recognizing that God's just not trying to keep us from fun. He's trying to protect us from destruction not just trying to keep you from experiencing something. He's trying to protect you. And it was in that place that his mind began to change and he began to say, yes, my dad knew what he was talking about when he said, son, wait. And so that change caused him to get up and he began to go home. He turned directions. You see, this is the reality of what Jesus is saying. Because as he got closer to home, The comfort came from knowing who his daddy was. You see, when we read that parable, we're surprised because most of us, I mean, my dad, I mean, I love my dad with all of my heart. He means the world to me. But when I did something wrong, when I disobeyed him and I blew it and I found myself in the pig trough and I turned around and came home, guess where my dad was? My dad was sitting at the kitchen table saying it's about time you got what you deserved didn't you you paid the price you're going to learn your lesson right because that's that's the world we live in but that's not the reality of scripture that's not the promise of scripture because you see david says god is drawn to those who are brokenhearted god never turns away those who are broken in spirit and so when the prodigal son started coming home he knew the quality of his dad and his daddy had been waiting on the porch and the moment he saw his son he jumped off the porch and he ran and he met his son there and he embraced him what did he do he comforted him and said i forgive you see the dad didn't go the pig trough he waited for him to come listen to me church 
that sin that's destroying you, that action that's eating you up, that action that's keeping you from singing and worshiping, keeping you from praying, it's, it's ruining your marriage, it's ruining your friendships, that sin that you've been ignoring, what you are called to do is to learn that God is brokenhearted because of that sin. And as you begin to say, I, I can't do this anymore, and begin to turn, the Bible promises that there is a loving and forgiving and graceful and merciful Father waiting to run and embrace you and give you comfort. You see, the happiness that he's talking about here, it doesn't come from us mourning. It comes from God's response to us mourning. Because we know, because the Word of God teaches, that when we come with a broken heart, God will always embrace Blessed, happy, joyful are those who are brokenhearted over what breaks God's heart. For they will find comfort. Let me ask you this morning. Are you finding comfort? Have you found peace? Peace over something you've done in your past. Peace over something that's been held over your head. Peace over something that's beating you up. Maybe it's because you've been excusing it or ignoring it. Maybe it's because you've been playing with it. It's time for you to have a change of mind and turn your heart towards God this morning. It's time for you to experience comfort because I promise you, you have a Heavenly Father that's just waiting for you to come. Waiting. Happy are those who are sad. Why? Because they're sad over the right things. And it's in that place that God brings you comfort. See, God's wanting to comfort you this morning. You know the coolest thing about this? I'm done. I, I'm going to end here. You know the word comfort there? The word comfort, they will find comfort. It is the root word parakleo. Parakleo in the Greek, they will find comfort. You know where that word sounds familiar for those of you that may have been in church before? Because when Jesus, after his resurrection, is getting ready to leave and ascend into heaven, his disciples are saying, don't leave, please don't leave us. And Jesus says, guess what? I'm going, but I'm sending someone to stay with you, someone that's going to be in your heart. He uses the term, there's someone that's just like me, and he calls him the helper. But you know the Greek word he uses there? He is the paraclete, the comforter. It's the same word. You see, this morning, when you begin to submit yourself to the Holy Spirit and become broken over your sin, you unleash the power of the Comforter within you. And He begins to comfort and bring peace and bring joy, even in the midst of sin. Because that's the kind of God we serve. When's the last time you were brokenhearted over your sin, over others' sins? Maybe it's time we did a little more mourning in the church.